Good morning, y'all. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead. Thanks for joining us this morning. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's head over to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 944, page 944. If you have a phone or uh, iPad or other uh, electronic device, go ahead and go over to Romans 8. Uh, last week, we kind of introduced Romans 8 by, by looking at the, uh, the story of the, the prodigal father, right? The man with two sons, often known as the prodigal son parable. Um, but as we saw last week, what I was trying to indicate is that this, this entire chapter really is the blessing of the father to us. Um, it is a chapter of the father's blessing. It is a chapter that invites us to get excited about the party of grace that has already started. Um, and is only going to get better, right? Because it's going to be in full swing when Jesus comes back. Um, but the door to the party of grace comes through God's tremendous mercy. We must enter grace through mercy. Um, and, uh, and those two key ideas are still at play, right? Mercy, we, we don't get what we do deserve. Grace, we do get what we could never earn. Um, we will get what we can never earn because we didn't get what we do deserve. Um, Romans 8, 1, right? There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And I, I don't want to move on too quickly from, from this idea. I think it's worth sitting in for a little while. I think it's a truth that needs to be imprinted on our souls, right? Uh, when I became a believer, um, I was taught very, very clearly that we are saved by grace, right? The, the tribe that I was, became a believer in, the group that I was, they, they really trumpeted that, that we are saved by grace, not by works, right? It's, it's not our work for God, it's Christ's work for us. Uh, we are saved by grace, right? And we celebrated testimonies that um, where the biggest sinners became the followers of Jesus, right? It was always great when you got a guy up there and was like, I was a total drug addict, I lived on the street, now I'm following Jesus and it's all great. Uh, we loved, we loved those, those radical swings, right? Um, sadly, uh, part of, of deficiency of understanding how these dynamics work, we often had other people get up and be like, yeah, I don't have much of a testimony, I was raised in a Christian home. And, uh, and I knew Jesus at a young age, which is, uh, it always makes me sad when people, uh, don't understand just how profound the good news is of their salvation, right? And how desperately they needed it too, right? As if you could rank sin. <laughs> as if, as if the sin of living in a gutter is somehow worse than the sin of self-righteousness, right? It, 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 all sin is equal and, and, um, and, and, and we all need grace, right? But here's the thing, the thing that, that, that kind of came out of this dynamic is I was taught that, that yeah, you're saved by grace, but once you become a believer, in order to stay in grace, you need to start deserving it, right? You're saved by grace, but you're kept in grace by working hard to be worthy of it, right? These, these guys that were teaching in this tribe used fear and shame. Because they saw them as, they saw fear and shame as positive tools, helpful tools to keep Christians in line. Um, helpful ways to, to motivate Christians to take their Christian life seriously and, and to grow, uh, in, in, in overcoming sin and, and being good and, and right. So you're saved by grace. Um, but you ought to better work hard to be worthy of it to prove that you actually have it. Is there sin in your life? Mm. You better be afraid that you're not really a believer, 
Because that fear is going to help you fight that sin and overcome that sin, right? Are you struggling with forgiving someone who sinned against you or overcoming a besetting sin? Well, you're not walking in a manner worthy of your calling. And if you if you don't walk in a manner worthy of your calling, maybe you weren't called, right? A little bit of shame helped motivate you to 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 do better and try harder, right? You, you're saved by grace, but now you need to get down to the hard work of obeying. Because it's in obeying that you prove that you actually received grace. Um, listen, using fear and shame to try to get you to work harder and do better is not only a theologically flawed approach to the Christian life, it's, it's stupid. Um, it doesn't make any sense theologically. It doesn't make sense with the gospel. And it will actually undermine your ability to actually grow in grace. Romans 8 is an incredible chapter that calls us to live out the glorious blessing of grace in our lives. But you know what's interesting about Romans 8? There's not a single command in it. Not a single command in Romans 8. Not once does Paul say, do this, now do this, now do this. Romans 8 is a proclamation of good news. You know why? Because the gospel isn't advice on how to live a better life. It is a proclamation of what Jesus did to free you from your old life. And it is in believing the good news. It is in believing in Christ. It is in responding to grace that we are changed, not by working uh, to earn what is only given freely by grace. It is news to be believed, not advice to be followed. But I want you to make no mistake with this. Paul is inviting us to be changed. In fact, we want to be changed. We know we're not who we're supposed to be. We know that we have not yet arrived where we want to arrive. We, we, we have much change. We, we get in our own way. We still sin against God. We still undercut our best efforts. We still do stupid things, right? We're, we're still experiencing and living in the reality of Romans 7, right? It's not that we don't want to change. The question is how we change, right? And Paul is inviting us to be changed. In fact, to be transformed from the inside out. And as we engage Romans 8, like God is inviting to, inviting us to, I believe we will be changed. See, that's what the power of the gospel is. This is news that has the power to change us, right? Not better advice on how we change ourselves. It, is, it, has, it has within it the power to change us as we simply respond to the love of God extended to us. Because we will be changed in the end by grace, not by our work to be worthy of it. Um, and this morning, if we want to engage the full transformative power of grace, we must enter through the door of mercy. And so we're going to sit a little bit longer in Romans 8.1. Kind of touched on it last week. And this week, we're going we're gonna to spend a whole sermon focusing on the word therefore. I've always wanted to preach a sermon on a therefore. And this is the best therefore in the Bible to do that. So I hope you're ready. Okay, this is kind of how we do, right? Sometimes I just pick a single word, and that's where we sit. So uh, let's take a look at Romans 8. Um, verses 1 through 4, and, uh, and then we'll talk about the therefore. All right, Romans 8, starting in verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Um, as I've told you guys a thousand times, and it was drilled into my head way back in the day when I was at that Bible college, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for, right? And in this one particularly, this is one of the craziest therefores in all of Scripture. It just is. The movement from chapter 7 to chapter 8 is jarring. Right? It, 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 and I believe it's intentionally jarring, right? Paul is purposely putting the chapter of his struggle with sin right next to the, to one of the most triumphant chapters in all of scripture. Romans 8, which is a, a chapter that just sings of triumph, right? It begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And in between, there is no defeat, right? It is one triumphant song of victory, right? And those two chapters are right next to each other, right? And and that's intentional, right? Paul is is purposely putting this chapter of personal sin next to triumph, right? He's like, wretched man that I am. That's where we ended in, in seven. Wretched man that I am, right? I love God in my head, but I still struggle with sin, in, in my life, right? I, 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 I get that God's principles are better, but I see a different thing at work in the members of my body. I, I, I love God, but I still have disordered desires, desires that, that, that lead me to the wrong things, to, to engage the wrong, the wrong things, to pursue the, the wrong things, and it's so deceptive, sometimes I don't even know I'm doing it. I get caught up in it, doing good things for bad motives. Right? Things that look really, really godly, but are really, really diabolical when you understand why I'm doing them. Right? I, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm still a mess. I, I struggle. Therefore, there is no condemnation. <laughs> that is jarring and unexpected. Right? I mean, put it, put it, let me put it this way. Like, let me give you some illustrations that, that kind of, I am bankrupt and I maxed out my credit card. Therefore, there is no debt collection. I jumped off a cliff without a parachute. Therefore, there is no falling. I said what I actually thought about my family's favorite politician at Christmas dinner. Therefore, no one gave me the silent treatment or talked behind my back. I stepped on a Lego barefoot in the middle of the night. Therefore, I spontaneously sang sweet, sweet songs of praise. Okay? The cause doesn't match the effect. You following me? The therefore seems discordant. It does not seem to work, right? The premise doesn't match the outcome. Or does it? Paul began the letter by making sure we understood just how bad off our situation was. So I'm going, to, I'm going to take us back, and I want to review a little bit to show how Paul's thought has developed to this point, because when we understand how that thought has been developed, this therefore actually makes perfect sense, right? So he began in, in Romans 1.18, painting a picture that, that showed just how bad off we are, right? Put the verse behind me and uh, on the screen above me, and uh, um, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right? The word, the Greek word for wrath is really interesting. It means really, really mad. Wrath. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. He's ticked. What is provoking God's anger? Um, to the point that he wants to reveal to us. In other words, he wants us to, he wants to, to make it known to us that he is angry. What is it? It is, it is ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness. Ungodliness. Um, uh, I think the best way that I have found to describe that is, is very simply, it is our attempt to ungod God. Ungodliness is, is when we try to take God off his throne and put ourselves on it ungodliness is when we look to the things God created to do for us what only God can do, right? So ungodliness is going to manifest itself in all kinds of sin, right? Sexual sin, prideful sin, religious sin. It, it is when, when we are trying to ungod God by no longer being humbly dependent on God, but instead we want to be like God. We want to mark the boundaries of our own glory. We want to pursue our own pleasure. We want to establish a platform of our own respect. We, whatever it is, right? We, we, we try to ungod God by basically no longer needing God, right? That provokes God when we try to ungod God. Unrighteousness. Um, the root of righteousness, the Greek word DK, means um, to be righteous or to be just. So unrighteousness is when we are not just, when we act in unjust ways, when we try to use our privilege to defraud others of their rights, when we, you know, we think about life, man. I mean, the goal of, of life, according to the American dream, is to keep what you have and get more. And if you have to step along, on a few people along the way, that's okay, because really the goal in life is to win. And in order to win, there, some people have to lose. And, 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 and if I win over you because I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you, I'm more equipped than you, I'm better educated than you, that's just life, right? That's just kind of the way it goes. But here's the thing. We don't have an understanding that, that like, put it this way, God created the world to be a place of the flourishing of life. The fullness and flourishing of life. We were to be productive, right? But not competitive. I was never meant to, to define my success compared to yours, my worth compared to yours, my value com- compared to yours. When I start doing that, when I create, uh, when I approach the world through a competitive model instead of a community model, instead of seeing the world as, as a group of people that are equal to me, also created in the image of God, I start seeing myself as, as being better and more deserving than others. In fact, I start defrauding others of their experience of the image of God by trying to promote my own pursuit of being like God. I no longer see people as people worthy of dignity. I no longer see people as my brothers and sisters, also created in the image of God, also worthy of love and generosity. I see them as competitors in a, in a field of limited resources, right? And I feel fully justified in having what I don't need while others suffer not having what they do need, right? That's unjust. God is provoked by, by, by our ungodliness and our unrighteousness, right? When we try to ungod God or, or we try to rob those that are created in his image from the dignity that is due their, that image, right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
right? Because at the heart of it, we know the way the world was designed to be. We just don't want it to be that way. We know we're supposed to be humble. We just don't want to be humble. We know others deserve a certain level of dignity. We just want to give it to them. We know that, that all those things, we suppress the truth. All right, in chapter 1, he explains this principle, right? That everyone is driven by their disordered desires to rebel against God, right? Just to remind you, disordered desires are good desires pointed at the wrong thing, right? It's a good desire for security that I've pointed at my bank account, or I've pointed at um, the amount of prestige I get from my job, or I've pointed at a specific relationship that makes me feel secure, right? It is a good desire pointed at a wrong goal, disordered desire. Instead of finding my deepest desires met in my relationship with God, I find my deepest desires met in my relationship with the world and with others. And so I try to turn things that aren't God into God. I look to things that aren't God to be God for me and to do for me what only God can do. We all have disordered desires, right? But here's the thing with Romans 1, and I love this. He describes this in such a way that he traps us. He traps self-righteous religious people into condemning themselves. Because throughout chapter 1, he, he does something that is, that is rhetorically brilliant. Instead of saying, we struggle with disordered desires, he says, they. And as soon as he starts talking about they, guess what we do? We don't count ourselves among them. Because in our minds, there's an us and a them. And we're always in the group of the good guys, and they're always in the group of the bad guys. So as we go through Romans 1, what's brilliant about this is he gets us all going, yeah, they're bad. Yeah, they're evil. Yeah, they deserve judgment, right? (laughs) This little trick was so effective. Right? It traps self-righteous religious people into condemning themselves, and, 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 it, and it's so effective that it continues to trap self-righteous religious people to this day. There are people who read Romans 1, and they use Romans 1 as, as a way to judge others. Romans 1, if you remember, um, highlights a lot of sins. But one of the specific sins that it highlights is the disordered desires that lead to homosexual activity, right? Men sleeping with men, women sleeping with women. And to this day, there are people that go to Romans 1, and they use those verses to say things like, see, that proves that homosexuality is worse than any other sin. That proves that, that, that that's bad, and those people are evil, right? <laughs> and, what, and what we miss is that the, the end of Romans 1 also includes sins like gossip. When we talk about people instead of talking to people. The end of Romans 1 also includes sins like deceit. Have you ever lied to anybody or lied to yourself? Bragging is in the list. Have you ever presented information in a way that made you look better than you actually were? That, that made sure that the, the light that came in on your character only highlighted the most profitable parts? Right? Maliciousness. Have you ever hoped that someone would receive harm? Huh. 
Romans 1 is inclusive, not exclusive. And in Romans 1, what I love is that it gets to Romans 2, and in Romans 2, that's where Paul really swings the hammer. Because at the beginning of Romans 2, he says, Therefore, you are without excuse, you who judge. See, he got us all going like, yeah, they're sinners. Yeah, they're bad. Yeah, those people. And then he's like, whoop. All right, you know that self-righteousness you're feeling right now? That proves that you're in the same group. That proves that you are worthy of judgment. He pulls the rug out from underneath the self-righteous religious people, basically saying, look, I set you up. (laughs) All right, you're condemned. By the very self-righteousness you feel, you are condemned. You're missing the whole point. You find them sinful. But you are them. There is no us-them. There is no good guys and bad guys. There are only people who are sinners and in need of grace. That's it. In fact, the argument culminates in Romans 3.23, where he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. That's a uh, present perfect tense, um, little English nerd information. Uh, present perfect, what that means is that he's talking about an action that occurred in the past that has ongoing present effects. All have sinned. I believe he's alluding to our first parents. And the fact that their rebellion has been passed down to all of us. We are sinners by birth and we are sinners by choice. All have sinned. And the word for sinned means to miss the mark, which is a a beautiful word to help us understand disordered desires. Right? Our disordered desires lead us to sin. Why? Because we miss the mark. We have a good desire, right, for rest. Uh, We have a good desire to feel worthy of love, right? But instead of pointing that at our relationship with God and pursuing to have that desire met in, in, in humble dependence on God, we instead aim for something totally different and we miss the mark, right? We, we end up trying to have those desires met in sinful ways. We look to things that aren't God to be God and to do for us what only God can do. All have sinned by birth and choice and all fall short of the glory of God. The tense there is present which means that it's an ongoing reality. Now, when we talk about the glory of God, we're going to get into this much more in Romans 8 because this theme is going to culminate in Romans 8 in a beautiful way. But I want you to remember that when we talk about the glory of God, we're not talking about His bright, shining nature. Okay, When we think of glory a lot of times, especially with glory of God, we think of Him just shining, right? Um, and, and maybe He does shine, right? At times, I suppose He does in different ways that He appears. Sometimes He appears in the darkness. Sometimes He appears as a flame of fire, right? His glory is what provokes us to give him honor. That's what glory is. Glory is honor. It provokes us to give praise. When we come across something that is glorious, we are provoked to praise it, right? And and, and when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the manifestation of his character in such a way that it provokes us to praise him. All right, how do we fall short of the glory of God? Well, remember, we were created in the image of God. We were created to bear his glory, to carry his character, to do his work in such a way that when people saw us, it provoked praise for God. We were covered in his honor and we were designed to share that honor, not so that we would become praiseworthy, but because he is. 
And as we do what he did and reflect who he is, it provokes others to give praise to his glorious nature. We fall short of the glory of God. What that means is that we fail in the human job description, every single one of us, every day. We had a human job description. We were created with a purpose to image God. And every single day, we fall short of fulfilling that purpose. Every single day, we fall short of being what we were created to be. Because we have committed cosmic treason and rebelled against our God, we now no longer reflect His glory. We fight for our own. All have sinned by birth and by choice. All fall short of the glory of God. And of course, it goes on. As we studied Romans 7, we saw that even as Christians, even as those who have believed in Jesus, we continue to struggle in sin. Not only were we sinners by birth and by choice, not only... Before we came to know Christ, did we fall short of the glory of God? We continue to fall short of the glory of God, right? We continue to struggle with sin. We continue to to have conflicted motivations and conflicted behavior. We continue to to be a mess, right? (laughs) There is therefore now no condemnation. How is this the logical outcome? Well, that's what the therefore is there for. Paul is is using an audacious therefore to make an audacious claim. What he's saying is based on everything I've told you up to this point, you should now see that this is, in fact, the logical outcome. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, by choice you rebel against God. Yes, you are driven by your disordered desires. Yes, you struggle with self-righteousness. Yes, you, you, you continue to fall short of the glory of God. Yes, those are all things that are true. And you are not condemned. When we stand before God outside of Christ, we have no hope of avoiding condemnation on our own, right? Because we can't remove our condemnation. Every, every work we do to try to make ourselves better only adds and makes it worse, right? Um, no matter how religious we become, no matter how morally self-controlled, um, we still stand condemned and, and under wrath. And in fact, the harder we work, the worse it becomes because we're simply adding self-righteousness to our sins of rebellion. Um, but here's the good thing. The good thing is that we're not standing in our work. We aren't standing on our own. We aren't dependent on our own ability. We're not being asked to work our way up to God. Right? Romans 5, 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To the one who does not work, In other words, to the one who repents of his religious earning. To one who gives up on trying to earn what he could never earn. Who who steps away from trying to to, 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 to be able to claim a prize by somehow improving yourself enough, working on yourself enough, defeating enough sin, becoming self controlled enough. To the one who does not work, but instead believes. In him who justifies the ungodly. 
Listen, I'm invited to the party of grace, not because I worked for it or because I deserve it. I'm invited because Jesus did my work for me and he paid my entrance fee on my behalf. And in order to receive the gift of grace, I have to actually stop trying to earn it. Because when I try to earn it, I'm trying to put God in a position where he has to pay my wages. Where it's like, man, I did enough work, now I finally think I deserve it. And God's like, no, you still don't get it. I'm not going to give it to you when you think you're trying to earn it. Because you can't. I will only give it to you when you stop trying to earn it and realize it can only be received as a gift. When you are finally in that place of absolute humble helplessness. That place where you realize you have nothing to offer but your sin. You will finally be in a place where you're able to receive grace. God doesn't justify the deserving. Or those that are in the do better, try harder school of self-improvement. God justifies the ungodly. That's ridiculously counterintuitive and beautiful. God justifies the unworthy. God justifies the helpless and the broken. God justifies the one who is morally bankrupt. God justifies the ungodly. Y'all, that's the point. When we think about the, the parable from last week, the two sons, and you think about the older son, the one who worked so hard and, and obeyed all the rules and did all the things he was supposed to do and had earned the praise of his neighbors. And, and at the end of the story, he, he looks at his father celebrating his rebellious son and he looks at his neighbors laughing at, their, at, their, at, at just how wasteful his father is and, and how foolish his father is, that he covers himself in shame to celebrate this son who should be punished, not loved. And what does the older brother do? He stands in his self-righteousness. He stands in what he's earned. And at the end of the story, he's standing in the darkness outside of the party. The rebel's the one in the party. The older brother who kept all the rules, worked hard and earned what he had, he's outside in the darkness cut off from grace. Listen, there's going to be a lot of good people who at the end of the day are going to be standing outside in the darkness. A lot of moral, good, Christian people who have tried to earn their way to the party. And they'll never be able to enter through that gate because the only door to the party of grace is the door of mercy. And the only way to pass through the door of mercy is to do it completely humble and broken with nothing to prove Nothing to present, nothing to earn. The only thing you have is your need. It's our pride that's our greatest enemy, not our sin. Because pride is the root of all sin. The therefore in Romans 8 1, 
points us back to this beautiful narrative that Paul has developed over the course of this letter, that we are justified not by our works, not through our self-improvement, not by meriting it or earning it, but by simply receiving grace through faith, by trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ. And my sin is counted to him in his death, and his righteousness is counted to me in his resurrection. When we understand that, how could there be any condemnation? How could there be? The therefore makes perfect sense. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is no other logical conclusion to the argument he's been developing. Take a look back at 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that Christ has died and rose again, now that we have been justified by faith and trusted in Christ, now that we are in Christ Jesus, as he says at the end of the verse, there's, there's no condemnation. I love the way he describes us as being in Christ Jesus. When you believe in, in Jesus, you are actually in Christ. You're not just with him. You're not just represented by him. You are in him. So when you enter through the door of mercy, you're coming in covered in Christ to the party of grace. And that was done because we're not condemned, but our sin was. Let me show you one thing a little bit farther down. We're going to get into this next week more in depth, but, but I want you to see this because I think it's a beautiful tie-in. In Romans 8.1, of course, he says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Look down at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We're, we're gonna, that's so dense and complex. We're going to get into that next week, but I want you to see this. He condemned sin. Where did he do it? In his flesh. The Son of God took on flesh. Right? He became the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful, but he was flesh. God became man so that he could live the life we should have lived and then die the death we deserve to die. And in his death, what was condemned? Our sin, not us. And when Christ came off the cross, our condemned sin stayed on it, right? We're not condemned because our sin was condemned. It just was condemned in Him instead of in us. He condemned our sin in His death so that He'd be able to give us His righteousness in His resurrection. When we get this, man, Romans 8.1 makes perfect sense. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Y'all, I've never gotten over this verse. I've never gotten over this verse. This verse has given me so much comfort in times of conflict. There have been times where, where I was wrestling with um, and I'll use this term, but I use it carefully, deconstruction, right? There, there were times that, that I looked at my Christian life. I looked at my experience in evangelicalism. I looked at things around me, and I was like, man, I don't know how I even fit. I don't know, like, like everything around me is just a mess. How can any of this even be true? 
right? Because I think there are times we have to deconstruct the things that are bad so that God can reconstruct the things that are good, right? I'm not talking about throwing it all out and destroying it all. I'm talking about, about being humble enough to, to, to actually allow God to break apart the things that need to be broken apart, right? But I've never been able to get away from this. There were times when I would be walking. I remember uh, at my school through seasons of, of, I just remember walking in the parking lot and wrestling. Like, I don't even, how do I even know? Like, like all the way down, how do I even know God's real? How do I even know that, that, and I, I couldn't get away from Romans 8.1. Because I couldn't get away from the fact that at the end of the day, man, yeah, Christianity's a mess. Yeah, the church is a mess. Yeah, our culture's a mess. Yeah, but you know what's not a mess? The love of God expressed to me in Jesus. I could never get away from that love. I could never get away from a God who loved me that deeply and that profoundly. I could never get away from a story that was that unintuitive. And I never got away from the comfort of knowing and hearing again that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So I'm not condemned. There is no condemnation. Like zero. All of my sin, past, present, future, It's all been paid for on the cross. It's all been taken care of in Jesus. There is no condemnation. I have received mercy. And having received mercy, I now stand in grace, which was the beautiful point of Romans 5.1, right? Having been justified by faith, we now stand in grace. Um, We stand in grace. Listen, y'all, you stand in the center of the party. I think a lot of times we feel like, yeah, 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 I get it, Steve. I get it. I was invited to the party. But the party's not really for me, right? The party's for Jesus, not really for me. We feel like, yeah, I've been invited to the party, but it's almost like I got invited in with a press pass. I'm supposed to stand around the edges and just kind of report on what happened, kind of watch it, right? But I got to be careful how close I get to the center because the reality is I don't belong there. This party is, is not for me. I, I'm invited, invited to it, but, but I, barely, I barely made it, right? Uh, I can come in, I can watch it, I can enjoy it, but I need to stay in the outer circle along the wall. It's, it's kind of like God maybe loves me, but I'm not sure he likes me all the time. You ever struggle with that? Like theologically, I know he loves me, but I kind of struggle with, with whether or not he likes me, because I don't like myself. I know myself, and I know that a lot of times I'm not very likable, right? I, I feel like uh, his attitude toward me changes with my behavior toward him. Like when I do really, really stupid things, I feel like, yeah, he probably doesn't like me as much. And then the flip side, of course, shame and, and pride are two sides of the same exact coin. The shame part, I'm not performing well so he doesn't like me. The, the flip side is when I'm doing well, I'm like, of course he likes me. I'm doing pretty good. Right? Hey, God, it's me, your favorite, right? I'm doing really great, really great, right? Pride and shame and, and um, listen, when Paul says that there is therefore now no condemnation, he means way more than we just have mercy. He's saying, yeah, you have you have no condemnation, but more than that, you now have 
all of God's affection. Right? God's not going to condemn you. But more than that, God delights in you. See, I think we subtly believe what is often taught. And, and what we, and the reason it's taught is because it's what's natural to us in our human experience. And that is, if we want someone to like us, we need to be likable. Right? If you want God to like you, you better get to work being likable to God. We assume God is like us. Right? That's one of the deceptive twists of sin, right? Is, is we were created in the image of God, but we have the sinful tendency of recreating God in our own image. We have a way of thinking that God is like us, that, that he relates to us like we relate to others, right? Because in my world, there are layers of acceptance. In your world too, right? Don't, it's all of us, right? There's people I like, and they have full access, right? There are people I kind of like. They don't get full access. There are people I don't know, and I don't know if I like them. I'll be friendly to them. But they're not going to get very close. Then there's people I don't like. And I'll be friendly to them too and polite, but I kind of avoid them. And then there's those people that, that for whatever reason, maybe they've hurt me or whatever, and I've forgiven them, um, but I'm having a hard time even liking them. And honestly, it's a struggle for me uh, to, to uh, value them. And, you know, like those are layers of acceptance, layers. And we all have them, all right? We all, we all do that. And, and so we assume God's love works like ours. But listen, with God, there's no, there's no levels of acceptance. You get that, right? There's no varsity and JV with God. There's no varsity Christian and JV Christian, right? There's no like, oh, he's a really, really godly Christian, and God must really love him and delight in him. Maybe someday I can be like that. There's, that is our projecting on God, not the way God reveals himself to us. There's one word used throughout the New Testament to describe all believers that is absolutely shocking. You know what it is? Saint. In fact, the early church used to call each other saints. Sainthood isn't something you arrive at after a long period of labor and suffering and purification. Sainthood is something you're given by grace in Christ because you are in Christ. You are fully loved. There are no levels of acceptance with God. If you've walked in the door of mercy, you are immersed in grace. And because you are in Christ, you are at the center of the party. God doesn't just forgive you. He delights in you. You are the younger son that we looked at last week. You're not just invited to the party. You're the center of the party. You're not just invited to a party. You were lost. And now you're found. And God delights in you. Because those who have received mercy stand in grace. That is really good news. All right, we're going to dig into this more next week as we continue into the following verses of Romans 8. But I'm just going to leave us there this week. That's a good place to leave us, huh? Like for real.
Tattoo Romans 8 onto your soul. Memorize it. Say it. Repeat it. Because you're going to forget it. And you're going to struggle to believe it. We need to keep coming back to this over and over and over again. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to share communion. And then... uh, we're going to sing, and then we're going to, we're going to have some baptisms, okay? So let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God. We thank you that um, as much as we feel like we have to prove ourselves, as much as we feel like we have to improve ourselves, you invite us back to the helplessness of dependence. You invite us back to a place where we simply receive instead of trying to earn. You you invite us back to mercy so that we can delight in grace. Or this is so unintuitive to us that you would you would be so radical in your love, so generous with your grace. I pray, Lord, that right now you'll bring comfort to those. I I know some of my friends are having a hard time believing this. I know some of my friends are having a hard time believing that you love them like this, that that you you have this, this unconditional, radical commitment that you not only love them in action, but you love them in affection. You delight in them. Spirit, will you warm their hearts to your love this morning? Will you make these truths not just theologically true, but personally true in their experience? Spirit, will you right now awaken them to the embrace of their Father? Will you in this moment, Lord, give them the the blessing of humble dependence that would allow them to receive this love and not fight against it? not try to earn it. Will you silence their pride and comfort their shame? I pray for my friends, Lord, who may be offended by this kind of love. Those that have worked really hard at improving themselves, fixing themselves, proving themselves. And the idea of a reckless love like this seems to devalue the work they've done. Will you give them the gift of humility this morning? To allow them to see that everything they've tried to earn is in fact their shame. And the only glory they have is what they can receive by grace. Will you allow them to stop comparing themselves to others and awaken them? to really the sin of self-righteousness as they seek to justify themselves by looking at others and declaring their sin instead of humbly coming in their own. Spirit, you're the one that can do this. I pray that you'll do it. Awaken us to the beauty of grace. Awaken us to the wonder of mercy. Awaken us to the incredible gift that it is that we are in Christ. That we might respond to this incredible love with love. And we pray this in the beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.